Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. It's really nice being here with familiar people. <coughs> I'm starting to uh, enter the time of year where I travel a lot. And uh, there's sort of two times of the year where I travel a lot. And in those times, when I go and teach a lot of workshops, and then I come back here for Tuesday, I'm so happy to see people that I know. <laughs> and. Um, especially uh, that I know over the years and um, can talk about some of the depths of practice um, in a way that's not always kind of introducing the same term again and again. Um, so we've been studying uh, the last uh, part of the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra and um, just to go over what we've been exploring, um, we started with line 30, where Patanjali says that there are some disturbances that show up in our practice that stir up consciousness. And they are sickness, apathy, <coughs> doubt, carelessness, laziness, hedonism, delusion, lack of progress, and inconstancy. In Constancy. Can you turn the lights up just a tiny bit, Jeff? Because I can't see anything. Um, which are distractions that stir up consciousness and then act, that's great, and act as barriers to stillness. When they do, he says, one may experience distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. One can subdue these disturbances by working with any one of the following principles of practice. And um, then he goes on to teach um, the Brahma Viharas, which seems <coughs> to be a direct lift from early Buddhism, and um, which are taught with a slightly different emphasis here. And um, he's suggesting that if you really want to meet some of the disturbances that show up in your practice, whether it's laziness or hedonism. I think we went through the list last week um, of some of the different ways that our practice gets interrupted by these patterns. And these are not self-constructed so much. They come as natural patterns. Sickness is not something we necessarily create for ourselves. And it can be a means of shutting down 
and it can also be an opportunity to wake up. But it depends on how we meet it. And so this is what Patanjali is trying to uh, explore here. And uh, so he's suggesting that the first thing we bring to um, these disturbances is uh, maitri, or friendliness. Or for those of you who um, uh, are interested in uh, Buddhist practice, of course, this is in Pali, the word is metta, uh, which gets translated uh, as loving kindness. And actually, I'm not going to talk too much about the Buddhist perspective, but in the later in the Buddhist perspective, uh, especially in the Mahayana version, um, Maitri is defined as loving kindness, which I really, really like because I love the idea or the notion of not splitting up love from kindness, that they're kind of like twins that stay together. And um, the way that traditionally this is practiced is that when a disturbance arises, um, notice the symptoms of that disturbance. So he lists symptoms as distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. And then to bring friendliness to the disturbance. So if the disturbance is laziness, I think we went over this last week, that you bring friendliness, which means, hi friend, um, and you uh, become like a host for the um, friend that is visiting. Because as we know, whatever shows up uh, is only visiting for a short period of time. And even though we may fixate on it and hold it in awareness for long periods of time, just because it's shown up means it's on its way up. And so how can we make space? I always think of meditation practice kind of as like hold and release, you know? Like as soon as you've noticed something enough that you can kind of recognize a pattern, we already should start releasing it so that we don't start compulsively fixating on it. So the kind of traditional way of approaching this is that first you bring friendliness to these uh, phenomena, then karuna or compassion, then mudita, delight, um, delighting in laziness. Actually, what delight means, the way I often think of delight, it's kind of like after you've been in bed for a week with a flu, um, or, you know, whatever, maybe you've been in bed long, long time, but I just had the stomach flu, so I was thinking about that, that finally you get to go outside, and that first walk outside, the way that nothing about that walk gets taken for granted. You, you're so hyper-aware of the smell, of the fact that you're walking, and there's a kind of natural delight that shows up in those conditions. Um, maybe even a, a kind of appreciation as well. And then upekshanam, or upeksha, equanimity. Um, so Patanjali says it this way, that consciousness settles. So by consciousness here, he's saying chitta. So... For the hatha yogi, chitta and prana are the same thing. So that the quality of the breathing and the quality of our attention, I like to translate chitta as imagination, um, settle as one radiates friendliness, and this is supposed to be in order, compassion, so compassion for what's arising, delight and equanimity toward all things, whether they are... Uh, 
Sukkah or dukkah? Uh, sweet or not? Or um, punya or apunya? Uh, good or bad? Um, so I could keep talking like this, which is the traditional way of how you uh, approach this part. But I have a little bit of a different sort of understanding of this part of the practice. And I'm not going to talk tonight so much about our daily lives and how this occurs, although maybe I will if we have time. But I find that in meditation practice, um, if you really focus on upeksha, if you really focus on equanimity, then it creates a ground for the other Brahma-viharas to show up. And the word Brahma-vihara usually is translated as the divine abode. But actually what it refers to is the abode of Brahma. And Brahma, of course, is a creator god and represents all forms of creative energy. If you study the yamas, Brahma refers to primarily sexual energy. But really, it means all forms of creative energy all forms of creativity. And so I often like to think of this section really as having to do with setting up the conditions for creativity. Setting up the conditions where con our consciousness is still enough that we're feeling the kind of um, openness that's necessary for creativity to flourish. So I like to think of it as the abode of creativity or the place where... Um, we're kind of open to guidance that has nothing to do with the guidance that comes from habit patterns. I'm supposed to talk next week about uh, poetry and ethics at an event called Poethics. I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but it's, I love the word. Poethics. So I was thinking today a lot about uh, creativity and art and ethics and poetry. And uh, I didn't come up with anything. <laughs> but I, I did think a lot about uh, a moment in one of Mike's films when he was showing his films where there's a lot of narration happening and I can't remember what the name of the film, but there's a lot of narration happening. Some of you were there uh, during this. And uh, then suddenly the film breaks into music that is interrupted. And as it's interrupted, you see these flashes of light on the screen, like explosions or something. Does anybody remember this? Mm -hmm. And they go on and on for a while. And it almost feels at first like it has nothing to do with the structure of the narrative in the film. And uh, I think about that scene a lot. I love that scene. And <coughs> It reminds me, I think, of the function of art when it's working well, is not the regular ways we think about art, that it kind of interrupts the way you perceive something or breaks through the way you tell a specific story. But I was thinking in that moment, it's sort of beyond entertainment. And it's also beyond like the consumption that we're normally used to. And so as I was thinking about this, I started realizing that what, was, what connects poetry and ethics is the fact that art is kind of anti-making. It's the opposite of making. It's, it's not really making anything. And in that sense, art is totally useless. And 
because you're making something that's totally useless, it becomes so useful. It's a little bit like how the mind works with meaning. When we're always looking at something, trying to find meaning, then it doesn't really have meaning. We're imputing the meaning all the time, like overlaying meaning on our lives. But when we're free of trying to set up what's happening in a meaning, in, in a way that has to do with our meaning, the meaning kind of comes from the other side. It's like the door opens from the other side. And our life becomes meaningful, or a situation becomes meaningful. Um, does this make sense? <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. I'll keep going though. <laughs> so, so I was thinking what's so interesting about creativity, it's, it's not really about making anything. It's actually the opposite of making anything. And it's about being open in such a way where we're open to the absolute uselessness of something. And then it suddenly becomes useful because we're not making it into something the way we make ourselves into something when we're making something as a subject. Yes? You can tell me if this makes no sense. but I haven't finished this idea, but it'll be done for next Thursday night <laughs> at 7 p.m. <laughs> Um, but this has everything to do with the Brahma-viharas because I feel sometimes when we're so logical, and the Indians love this, like early Indian teachings love lists, they're obsessed with lists, and you go through things in order, you know, you first bring friendliness, and first bring, and then you bring compassion. And sometimes the meditation practices at first when you learn them can be quite busy because you're preoccupied with, you know, first meeting the laziness with, oh, wait, do I meet it with compassion? Or do I meet it with... <laughs> but the bottom line, actually, I think is equanimity. Um, if you just look back at the sentence again, um, Patanjali is saying here, consciousness settles. So we could retranslate that as the condition for creativity occurs. Um, when there is equanimity toward all things, whether pleasant or painful, good or bad. Um, equanimity is the spacious balance that sometimes we find naturally and sometimes we really need to cultivate. And I think in our meditation practice, we really need to cultivate equanimity. It's said that equanimity has two uh, enemies, a near enemy and a far enemy. So the far enemy to equanimity um, is restlessness and distraction. We all know this, right? Almost the opposite of equanimity. Maybe is the far enemy we could say is reactivity. Right? The opposite, almost, of uh, equanimity is reactivity. But it's said that... Um, Every state of mind has a near enemy and a far enemy. The far enemy is the obvious opposite. This is how yoga psychology works. Is they, they talk about uh, complementary opposites. But the near enemy of something is when that character of mind is almost indistinguishable from another. And so the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Because... Sometimes it seems like if we're really not clinging to what's good or bad or defining things as good or evil or us and them, 
then we might think that this leads to a kind of indifference. And I think intellectually it does. I think when we're intellectually critiquing something and we stop choosing sides, there's a kind of indifference that shows up in a cerebral way. But it's really different when you're meditating. Because in meditation practice, when we're not picking and choosing, and we're just opening to what's actually showing up, whether it's light or it's dark, or both back and forth, um, the feeling is of actually expanding the possibility of feeling our way into what's showing up. Um, so, If we think of reactivity as flip-flopping between attachment and aversion, we can think of indifference as a more subtle flip-flopping where we just don't care and we just shut off. Maybe it's almost even like apathy is like this too, right? We're humans and we love pleasure and all we want to do is repeat pleasure. I could talk to you a lot about aversion because you all know that really well. But sometimes it's hard actually to notice that sometimes we're also in a reactive pattern around pleasure. We feel some pleasure and then we just want to find a way to repeat it. And that's also a pattern of attachment. So whether um, we're talking about reactivity in a gross way, which is the desire to re re repeat pleasure, or aversion, trying to get away from what's not pleasurable, or we're talking about um, indifference, neither of these is equanimity. Does this make sense so far? I like to think of equanimity um, not as pulling away, um, but as a kind of like impartiality. So a spaciousness of mind where you can hold what shows up and then release it. Hold and release it. There's a Buddhist teaching where the Buddha says that if the sun comes into a room from the south side, it lands on the north wall. And if it comes in from the east side, it lands on the west wall. And then he goes on to talk about how in your own body, you can make your body a no landing zone where we don't give the uh, sun a place to land because we don't create any walls. When we studied the Heart Sutra, we talked about how fear is caused by walls in the mind. Do you remember that term? Uh, walls of the mind. So if you don't create walls of the mind by picking and choosing, then whatever shows up when equanimity is present doesn't land anywhere. You don't give it a place to land. And I think we can all relate to that uh, once in a while in our meditation practice. Just staying enough with breathing that even the strong patterns of negativity or the strong pull of pleasure just doesn't have a place to take root. And then it doesn't. And then something else shows up, and then something else shows up. So this is what we mean by equanimity. And in my opinion, the whole path of meditation 
um, is about equanimity. And I think that if you just get the equanimity piece, then the other Brahma Viharas just show up. If equanimity is the foundation, then friendliness and compassion and delight will automatically show up. So let me know how it goes. Does anybody have any comments or questions before I keep going another layer with this? So one of the translations I found for Upeksha is um, equanimity, um, but I also found um, evenness, uh, normalcy, and this is the one that I liked, sanity of heart. Um, Someone else calls it the unshakable, this is in Vyasa's commentary, he says, the unshakable balance that serves to prevent either excess or deficiency in other areas of meditation practice, which I liked. Um, The unshakable balance. So again, this is kind of treating Upeksha as the most important of the Brahma Viharas. Um, Sorry to Sharon Salzberg, who's invested in the first one. But um, maybe loving kindness has a better selling feature than equanimity. I don't know. Unshakable balance that serves to prevent either excess or deficiency in other areas of meditation practice. Um, Equanimity is not uh, born from just mindfulness practice. So in mindfulness meditation, the word mindfulness literally means to return. It's a verb, and it means to return to the object of meditation in the present moment. So if the object is anger, or if it's the breath, returning to it becomes mindfulness of anger or mindfulness of breathing. Um, You can be mindful of anything just by returning to it as it shows up. Um, But there is another way of meditating, which is concentration practice. In concentration practice, instead of choosing an object and letting other predominant things arise and then coming back to the object. We choose an object and we stay with it. So a really simple example of concentration practice is counting the breath, right? When you count a breath, you're not really coming back to the breath. You're staying with the breath and you're counting it. So you count inhale, exhale one, inhale, exhale two, and you go all the way to 10 and then you start again. And you do this over and over to start to really focus or train the mind, (coughs) just like you learn a language or learn an instrument. Um, And I think equanimity comes more from concentration practice than it comes from mindfulness practice. Um, I like to think them as really separate practices. Um, So for those of you that are learning concentration practices, I know a bunch of you are, um, you can see how the concentration really establishes equanimity in a very strong way where you're staying with the object and you're not letting anything else in and staying relaxed at the same time. And the key to um, good concentration practice is not getting tight. 
And so the byproduct of that is equanimity, really balanced um, mind. One of the ways I thought that equanimity shows up in our daily life is uh, what are often called the eight vicissitudes. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as the eight worldly winds. Um, he says that there are sort of eight winds that blow through your life. I find this really helpful. Um, the first winds are, uh, and there's always an incoming wind and an outgoing wind. Uh, the first one is gain and loss. Uh, the second one is praise and blame. The third is um, fame and disrepute. And the f- fourth is pleasure and pain. And because they each have both sides, you double them and you get eight wins. Um, whenever you experience gain, it will be followed by loss. Whenever you make something, you put it in the world, and then it also dies eventually. Um, same with praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Everything arises and then becomes its opposite eventually. And uh, I think that if you really open in your life to non-clinging, then when these different winds show up, one of the best ways to meet them is with equanimity. Um, It's funny for those of you who do anything that gets reviewed, like maybe you make a record and then someone reviews it. And then if you really review the reviews, you have to be careful because if there's a review that praises, you get really caught up in that and you get excited about that. And then uh, if there is a review that does the opposite, then um, there's a real loss there. Or people maybe who work in the stock market, um, you can really see gain and loss in one day, right? These winds blowing through. And so the practice of equanimity is opening to feeling um, the effect of a good review and a bad review, um, but without being attached or taking an action without being attached to the fruit of the action. And um, I don't know if I know how to do this. It's, it's pretty easy to find in meditation practice because when you practice, you can get concentrated enough that this is established. But in daily life, to really experience these wins um, and meet them with equanimity, I think that uh, it's a real motivator for formal practice. Otherwise, we we just keep crashing in to those waves. And then with equanimity, we can really be present fully. Really to be intimate uh, with everything. The light now, uh, sound when I'm speaking or when I'm not. Uh, how your body feels now, not uh, how it's going to feel later when you finally eat or rest.
but actually right now to practice equanimity, not as like this idea of something you get to do eventually in your meditation practice, but with what's showing up right now in the emotional body, in your uh, philosophy about what's happening. And I think the great uh, doorway that opens up or window that opens when we practice equanimity is that um, we see that right now nothing is separate from us or hidden. That there's nothing special to get to that's outside of this moment. And that's what I meant by art as being anti-making. That we're not trying to make something of this moment. We're just entering it fully. And then as you enter it fully, it opens up, not as separate from you. So as Shankaracharya says, there's nobody doing nothing. Nobody doing nothing. Or as the Bhagavad Gita says, doing non-doing. Doing non-doing. How do you do non-doing? There was a uh, great Thai Buddhist teacher who's passed away now named Ajahn Chah, who taught a lot of the Americans who teach now, like Jack Cornfield and people like that. And uh, he taught this one teacher named Ajahn Sumedho, who, who still teaches in Britain. And um, just before he died, he asked Ajahn Sumedho to go to Britain and to build a monastery. And so he... Could you imagine this? Like... You've been living in Thailand for 20 years with your teacher. Maybe you started when you were 17 years old or something. And he says, okay, the next phase of your practice now is to go to England with no money and go build a monastery in 1980. <laughs> and, uh, so he was like, okay. So he went and uh, started building a monastery. So you can imagine, like, you spend your whole days as a meditator for a long time, for decades, and then suddenly you have to go back into the culture you escaped from and actually go build a monastery. And um, as he started doing the work of building a monastery, which you can imagine is a huge amount of work, um, with no blueprint. I mean, who was building Thai monasteries in England <laughs> in 1980? And uh, right before Ajahn Chah died, he sent Ajahn Sumedho a letter. And um, the letter just said... Um, don't go forwards, don't go backwards, and don't be still. <laughs> and I think that really captures doing non-doing. Uh, as soon as you say don't go forward, the mind immediately says, okay, should I back up a little? And then he said, no, don't go backwards. Like, okay, I should just be still then. Okay, but don't be still. Which is not questioning activity about forwards or backwards or still. It's poking at the one who is going forwards or backwards or still. The subject that we create, that I am building a monastery, or I am not building a monastery, or I am a meditator. Ajahn Chah was famous for um, uh, waiting until people started getting concentrated 
and then making them go do work practices um, that often were loud. So like he would wait until a student was just starting to learn their concentration practice and then he'd send them to the market to go shopping for everyone. Um, where he wouldn't let people kind of rest in where they started feeling pleasure um, or too much comfort. Good lesson. And then equanimity makes this practice deepen so that we can become aware of what's outside of this skin bag. And to really, it's true, right? I mean, we think of us so much as inside this and how to practice in such a way where we forget about ourselves. So any comments about this or questions or thoughts? So quiet today. I have a question about oh. the difference between mindfulness practice and concentration practice. Mm-hmm. When you explain it, mm-hmm. it feels like two different practices mm-hmm. to me. But when I sit and I've been doing, trying to do concentration practice for the last couple of maybe month or so, uh-huh. and there's a moment where I don't feel there's any difference, and I don't know if I'm not doing it right. Uh-huh. Or I, I don't know if I'm, to me, it's more a difference in sort of like the way from which the commitment is coming or how you're focusing. Yeah. But then when you're there, uh-huh. concentration practice just feels narrower in a way. But that's, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, can you talk a little bit more about it? A little bit. Um, there's a huge debate in meditation circles which is if you really get a strong mindfulness practice happening then um, concentration just starts showing up naturally it just happens you keep coming back to the object over and over and then you stop drifting too far from it and then your experience of the object deepens And so for, uh, in in the Buddhist world, it's called the jhanas that you enter. And in, uh, for Patanjali, it's called samadhi. And there are different layers of samadhi. And they're divided in half. The first few levels of samadhi are called bija. And the second are called nirbija. Bija is a seed. So they have to do it actually with the seeds of language. So that um, when you really become absorbed in the object or one with an object. So, so for example, you all know this, right? If you've been meditating even a short time, you know that you come back to the breath, you come back to the breath, and then there comes this point, especially those of you who've been on retreat, where you're coming back, coming back, and then there's just breathing, and you kind of, you're just there. And it's like, almost like the technique has got you to this place where you don't need it anymore. And then the mind comes in and goes, oh, <coughs> And then you see in that moment how the language sets up a split between the subject and the object. Suddenly, I am breathing again. And that's the first stage of samadhi and the second stage. So the first stage is that first experience of connection, which is the seventh limb of Ashtanga Yoga. And then the eighth limb is the way that you see how language interrupts that. 
The third level uh, and the fourth level of samadhi is then being able to drop language and experience that and to bring it back again. And then the last four are free of language. And that's purposefully? Like you talk about it like you bring it back again. You bring it back in, yeah. And so that's why we say concentration is a special technique because there are little tricks you do to do that that are not really included in the mindfulness practice. And in fact, in the Buddhist teaching, the Buddha doesn't really talk about any of that in the foundations of mindfulness. Yeah. Okay. So I, I like to think of them as separate, but you know, people argue about it all the time. Maybe they just argue about it to have a view, to feel like a subject. Makes me feel better. Um, maybe I'll say one more thing about that because it's on the topic. But when you learn how to enter those states of concentration, usually you learn how to do it through the Brahma Viharas. So actually you practice loving kindness as a form of concentration practice in order to enter into samadhi, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But if this isn't something you've practiced before, just don't listen to any of it. Because <laughs> it will give you too many ideas of what happens down the road. But it's good to learn little bits about it to see, because I think once in a while someone has a little taste of concentration, and then it really opens up levels of mind that are possible that we don't know when we're just thinking, thinking all the time. And it's fascinating, really fascinating. And, uh, yeah. Christian? So, if like something's disrupting, you're feeling like anger or something like that, and you go in, and you're finding, or you're searching for equanimity. Yeah. I mean, not searching, but. Can you focus or concentrate on the anger until then it's not anger anymore or it's yeah. something different, that energy? Yeah. If you really open to anger when it shows up, it's a theme tonight, I think. But if you really open to anger when it shows up, uh, Mark Epstein has this wonderful essay he wrote for Oprah's magazine mm -hmm. called Be Here Angry Now. <laughs> um, when you really open to anger, it doesn't last very long. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh calls it taking care of your anger, um, which isn't to say don't be angry. It's saying we open to the anger and then usually hidden underneath anger is feeling. When you're really angry, you don't really feel anything. Like in the Abhidharma even, emotions and feelings are not considered the same thing because emotions are considered reactive patterns to feelings. So if you think of anger as an emotion, and this could be semantics, but it also might not be. Like, if you think of anger as a reaction to feeling, it's kind of interesting because if any of you, has anyone here ever been angry before? If you've ever been angry, you know that when you're really angry, although it's so physical, you actually don't feel much. I mean, you know that trying to talk to an angry person doesn't work. And then when the anger settles, there's a lot of feeling under it. 
if you've been truly open to the anger, and the feeling under it is usually, you know, sadness or hurt or something. Or fear, you know. And uh, so I could, I could tell you, you know, what our emotions or what our feelings, but I think it's something for you to also explore in your life. Like, are there certain things that you call feelings that are really reactions to feelings, but masquerade as feelings? Like, we like to think of anger as a feeling, and it makes it really easy to get righteous about anger. And I think the whole way we think about anger in Western psychology contributes to that. That you have a right to be angry, and I think it really keeps us in our perspective. And the interesting thing about anger is when you're angry, it's really hard to listen. Because you don't feel anything, and so you can't take in another viewpoint. And I remember when I used to do a lot of uh, more activist stuff, um, it was always interesting noticing which activists really get stuff done. And they're not the activists who are angry all the time. And the only reason, I think, is because when you're angry all the time, there's never an opportunity to listen. And if you can't hear, you, you can't get anything done. And, uh, and you see those kind of activists burn out fast. And they tell themselves they're burning out because they're working so hard for their cause or whatever.